If you will, go ahead and take your Bible and turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And I want to speak to today, today on this subject, turning point. I, I looked up turning point in the dictionary, and here's what it said. Turning point is a point at which significant change occurs. Now, let, let's be clear about the events surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had told his disciples on several occasions that they were going to Jerusalem, that he would be killed, and he told them numerous times that he would be resurrected from the dead. However, the disciples couldn't grasp the reality of all of this, and why should they? Nothing like this had ever happened before in human history. When Jesus was arrested, brutally tortured, and crucified, the disciples were traumatized by the confusion and spiritual darkness that they were launched into as a result of these events. Their hopes and dreams were crushed. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, numerous Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled and everything changed. It was not only a turning point for the disciples, but it was the turning point of all of human history. You say, Pastor, you are stretching it. You are speaking in hyperbole. No, I'm not. I'm telling you, friend, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the turning point of human history. The resurrection validates everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus claimed. It promises new life and new hope here and now. So in our Bible today, we're going to examine the impact of the resurrection upon those first century disciples, and we're going to look at the implications that the resurrection has for our lives here in 2022. So look at verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Now last week we looked at chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, and the three main characters were Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John. But now the scene shifts from the empty tomb where Peter and John and Mary Magdalene had been to a locked room where the disciples of Jesus had retreated out of sheer fear. What were they afraid of? Well, I would imagine that they were afraid of the Roman authorities busting into the room where they were and, and handcuffing them and taking them away to crucify them also. I'm sure that was part of the fear that they were experiencing. But suddenly, on that evening of the first day of the week, a Sunday, suddenly the resurrected Christ appeared to them. Now listen, there are those who say, and, and this could be true, that Jesus had the, the power in his resurrection body to walk through a wall or, or, or to, to go through a door without 
opening the door. But Jesus also had the power through his very speed of thought to be in a place and to just, just materialize right there where they were. It could have been either way. But one thing is for certain. Jesus showed up in that upper room. He showed up. Oh, what an amazing moment that was. Now, there were several appearances of the Lord on that first Easter, that first Sunday. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. We, we saw that last week. He appeared to the other women. He appeared to Peter by himself. He appeared to two Emmaus disciples. And, and he appeared to the disciples minus Thomas, which we're about to read about. It seemed too good to be true, but it was true. Jesus was alive. And his first word to them was shalom, peace. Now, this word means well-being in the truest, deepest sense of the word. You can't find this kind of peace by popping pills or, or by drinking alcohol or by climbing a career ladder, or by immersing yourself in immoral pleasures. This kind of peace comes only from the hand and heart of God. In Romans 5.1, Paul wrote, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, do you sense an emptiness in your spiritual life? Do you sense a, a separation between you and the creator God who created you in your mother's womb? Oh, dear friend, turn to Jesus today. Jesus has the authority and the power to give you the peace that you're longing for, peace with God and the peace of God. Look at verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. I'm just wondering, did Peter, James, and John, and the rest of those guys, did they think that this was a ghost that suddenly appeared in the room with them? Well, Jesus wanted to make sure that these disciples understood that he had been resurrected in his body. He had a glorified, resurrected body, and he showed them the wounds in his hand and the wound in his side to reassure them that he was in fact alive. He was alive and it would change their lives forever. By the way, they shouldn't have been surprised by this. In the upper room where Jesus spent several hours teaching them kingdom truth, Jesus had said to them in John chapter 16, Verses 20 and 22, these words. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. Now, verse 22, therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. Did you hear that? Listen, before he was ever crucified. Jesus told those disciples, he looked them in the eye and he said, guys, I'm going to see you again. You haven't seen the last of the king. I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. 
And these disciples were launched into a realm of sheer joy that they had never before experienced. Now, this kind of joy and peace can only be found in the very heart of God. Only God can give you this joy and peace. And that is if you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Have you turned from your selfish, sinful pursuits and committed your life to the resurrected son of the living God. Listen, if you haven't done that today, we're gonna to give you an opportunity to do that as we worship at the end of this service today. Now look at verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I also send you. The second time Jesus has said this, right? Peace be with you. He would say it one other time. So three times in all in this, in this, up, in this room, this experience in the upper room, Jesus says to these disciples, peace be with you. Now the wounds were evidence that the price for their sins had been paid for on the cross of Calvary. The wounds were evident that Jesus had fulfilled his obligation to the Father to offer his body and blood as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the human race. He said from the cross, it is finished. And my friend, it was finished. Jesus had done everything necessary to save our souls. And so Jesus challenged the disciples to take the gospel, the good news of his death, burial, and resurrection, and to share it with the entire world. This was the great commission before the great commission. He said, I send you into the world. By the way, he had prayed that to the father in John chapter 17. We covered that a few weeks ago. In John 17, 18, Jesus is praying to the Father. And he says, Father, as you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So the heavenly Father sent Jesus into this world. You know why the Father sent Jesus into this world? Because he loves you. Because he wants you to have peace with him because he wants you to experience the forgiveness for all of your sins that can only come from the hand of a mighty and awesome savior, a resurrected savior. That's why God sent his son. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. And he was willing to go to the cross in order to pay for your sins in order that you could be forgiven and be a part of his everlasting family. Now these men that Jesus was entrusting this huge responsibility to were men who had fled, men who were overcome by fear. They had forsaken him, but now he was sending them into the world to represent him and his kingdom to a lost and dying and confused world. That's grace, isn't it? You see, Jesus knew what he wanted to do with these men. He knew that his resurrection would make all the difference in the world in their lives. These men who were cowering in fear in the upper room were men who would be 
blessed with boldness and courage and preached the gospel all over the known world, why they would be known as men who turned the world upside down. And Jesus knew that. What a difference the resurrection made in their lives. Look at verse 22. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus breathed on his disciples, he imparted the Holy Spirit to them. Now they would be empowered and enabled to be the sent ones, to go into the world, to carry the gospel to their friends and neighbors and nations of the world and to fulfill this assignment that the Lord had given to them. Can I ask you, are you a true believer? I want you to understand that Jesus, the Son of God, was sent by the Heavenly Father to consummate the gospel by dying for our sins on the cross and by being resurrected from the dead. But now the Lord is sending his followers into the world to proclaim the gospel to a dying, confused, sinful world. And you need to understand that this same commission, this same command that the Lord Jesus gave to Peter, James, and John and the disciples in the upper room is the command that he's given to you. If you're a born-again believer, you have the responsibility to represent Jesus to a lost world. You have the responsibility to share the gospel with your neighbors and the nations. You have the responsibility to take all of your loved ones, all of your kinfolks, all of your neighbors, and make sure that they hear this glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, he gives you the Holy Spirit. If you're a born-again believer, you've received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells you. The Holy Spirit empowers you. The Holy Spirit will give you the strength to do exactly what Jesus has commanded you to do. Look at verse 23. A lot of people are confused by this verse, but really it's very simple. In fact, it's so simple that even the boys and girls in this room can understand it here in just a moment when I explain it. Jesus said, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now what's dangerous is when you take a verse like this and you rip it out of its context and you do not allow the context to reveal to you what the Holy Spirit meant when he gave these words to the apostle John. You, you see, the disciples were given the authority from God to declare forgiveness or lack of forgiveness based upon the people's response to the gospel they proclaimed. You see, there's nowhere in the Bible that says that Peter, James, John, or any of the apostles were given the right to declare that someone's sins were forgiven or someone's sins were unforgiven, not forgiven. They could only do that as people responded to the gospel they were called to proclaim. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, they teach that the priests and the pope and, and the cardinals, they have the right to absolve people of their sins. There is no biblical basis for that in the Word of God, not, not a single shred of evidence of that in the Word of God. 
There's only one person who can forgive sins, and that is God alone. God alone. Now listen to me very carefully. Several years later, Peter had gone to to Caesarea, and he he was preaching the gospel in the home of Cornelius, a Roman centurion. Cornelius had gathered his friends and family together, and Peter walked into that home, and he began to preach the gospel, this gospel that Jesus said that they were responsible for sharing with the world. And here's what the Bible says, Acts chapter 10, verse 38 to 43. You know of Jesus of Nazareth. Here's Peter preaching to Cornelius. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. Not not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us, look at this, he ordered us, he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, now don't miss this, through his name, what name? The name of Jesus Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now look at verse 43. Don't miss it. Everyone who believes in him, Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins. So if I were to ask you, based upon what I just read and based upon the teaching of the New Testament, how anyone can have their sins forgiven, I would hope and pray that you would say, Pastor, the only way that anyone can have their sins forgiven is by placing their faith and trust in Jesus who went to the cross and died for their sins and, it was, and was raised from the dead. He's the only one that can forgive our sins. But when we share the gospel, When we share the gospel and somebody repents of their sin and places their faith in Jesus, we can safely assume that their sins have been forgiven, right? But if they reject Jesus, then we can safely assume that their sins have not been forgiven. I remember several years ago, a young man that I was ministering to, and this young man came to me and he said, Pastor, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. But pastor, I cannot believe in the resurrection. And he said, pastor, can I be saved and go to heaven? I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. God will not forgive your sins. You will never go to heaven if you reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now look. What gave me the right and authority to say that? The Word of God. The Word of God says that we must believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we're going to be saved. I'm going to get to that verse in just a moment. 
Now look at verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, which means a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now this is interesting. The first Sunday morning, Thomas was not with them when Jesus came that evening. He wasn't with them. But why wasn't he there? Was he disappointed? Was he deceived? Was he overcome with emotion? Was he being pessimistic? Or, Or was he filled with hopelessness? One thing is for sure. Thomas loved Jesus. Let's don't be too hard on him. Thomas loved Jesus, and he was absolutely crushed to know that the one whom he had devoted his life to for three years had been crucified and buried. So he chose not to gather with the disciples. Hey, you know what? The New Testament teaches that we should gather with other believers. And they, they believed, beginning right here, you're talking about change, beginning right here, there was a move to the New Testament church worshiping on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, in honor of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And dear friend, when you miss church, you may miss Jesus. When you miss church, you may miss a sermon that God has laid on my heart that would make a world of difference in your life. It may encourage you. It may lift you up. It may convict you and bring you to repentance. But dear friend, you need to gather with believers. There's nowhere in this Bible that it teaches that we are to be lone rangers as believers. We need each other. We need to be with each other because Jesus always shows up when we are together. I believe he's here this morning. Look at verse 25. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And they just kept saying to him, we've seen the Lord, Thomas. We've seen the Lord. I I can hear John and Peter saying to him over and over again, listen, Thomas, don't, don't, don't be so hard-headed. Don't be so stubborn. Don't be so pessimistic. Listen, Thomas, Jesus is alive. We've seen him. The women saw him. The two disciples from Emmaus saw him. But Thomas says, unless I put my finger in the nail prints of his hand and my hand in his riven side, I will not believe. Now, Thomas was outlining his own terms for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. I ask you, do we have that right? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to ask God for a miracle? Absolutely not. When Darlene was sick, I can't tell you the number of times I asked God for a miracle. And God gave us one because she's a miracle. It's a miracle she's alive. Our doctor said that. But let me tell you what's wrong. 
it is absolutely wrong and dangerous to ask God for a miracle in order to believe in the resurrection of Jesus as Thomas did. That is wrong. That is dangerous. When you say to Jesus, I won't believe in you unless you do this miracle in my life, you're saying to him, I can't and I won't take you at your word. I will not do it. You've got to prove yourself to me. Dear friend, can I tell you, Jesus does not have to prove a single thing to you. He's done everything necessary. He's proven himself over and over again. And the greatest proof that he provided to a waiting and watching world is his bodily resurrection from the dead. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you third time he said that. So it's one week after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the disciples had seen him. He had said to them already, peace be, peace be still twice. But, but now he comes again a week later and they're in the same room behind the same locked door. Had anything changed in their lives? Were they processing all that had happened? Were they praying? Were they studying the Old Testament prophecies? Well, we don't know for sure. But think about this. We celebrated Easter Sunday last Sunday. And here we are a week later. And I ask you, has the resurrection of Jesus Christ made any difference in your life during this past week? Has it? Has it made you love Jesus more than you loved him before? Has it made you more devoted to Jesus than you were the week before? Has it given you a desire to read the Bible and to pray and to obey him in the, the minute areas of your life? Is there any change in your life a week after we celebrate Easter? There should be, shouldn't it? I love this part of the story. Once again, the resurrected Lord showed up. I, I personally believe that Jesus, from another dimension, a spiritual dimension, just made himself visible to these disciples in that room. But this time, Thomas was there. I'm amazed at how Jesus responded to Thomas. Look what the Bible says in verse 27. Then he, Jesus, said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. I, when I read that, I asked myself this question. How did Jesus know what Thomas said if Jesus wasn't in the room? If Thomas wasn't there? How, how, how in the world did Jesus know that? I'll tell you how he knew it. He's God. Do you know that what you think in your bedroom, Jesus knows? Do you know what you say on a Saturday night or, or the movie you watch on a Saturday night? Jesus knows exactly what you said and he knows the movies you watch. He is omniscient. 
He knows everything. And yet here, he knows exactly what Thomas has said. He knows these demands that Thomas purportedly said in order to believe that he was resurrected from the dead. And he shows up and he begins to go down, down each one of Thomas's demands one by one. And notice what he says. Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And then Jesus commanded him, do not be unbelieving, but believing. What patient love and compassion Jesus showed to this disciple who was filled with doubts, who was filled with uncertainty. Notice verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. This was an authentic moment of worship. And Thomas declared that Jesus was alive. And Thomas declared that Jesus is God in the flesh. And I tell you, my friend, as I said a moment ago, no one can be saved from their sins and blessed with the gift of eternal life if they reject the resurrection of Jesus. No one. Listen to Paul, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And I tell you on the authority of God's word, no matter how religious a person is, no matter how intellectual a person might be, if that person rejects the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that person will be eternally separated from God because there is no forgiveness of sin if we reject the resurrection of Jesus. How serious was Thomas about his commitment to Jesus? He said, my Lord and my God. Man, what a testimony. What a testimony that is. What a declaration that was. Well, how serious was he? Well, I want you to know that Thomas was a serious follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And tradition tells us that Thomas took the gospel of Jesus to the nation of India. And when he got out and he began to preach the gospel, he was speared and he became a martyr on the shores of India for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. I'll tell you, the resurrection of Jesus was the turning point of Thomas's life. It changed everything for him. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? And then Jesus said something who has, that has implications for us today, here's what he said. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. 
You see, the early Christians were saved not by seeing Jesus, but by believing in Jesus. The emphasis through the gospel of John is on this concept of believing in Christ. There are nearly a hundred references in this gospel to the importance of believing in Jesus, placing your faith and trust in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Later, Peter would write this to believers in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And though you have not seen him, by, by the way, have any of you ever seen Jesus? I've never seen him. He's never manifested himself. He's never made himself visible to me. He didn't make himself visible to me in that dorm room at Mississippi State when I was saved. I didn't see him. I'll tell you what, he was there. He was there. And I'll tell you what, when I received him as my personal Lord and Savior, he changed my life forever. I've never been the same. So Peter writes and he said, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, what? The salvation of your souls. Glory to God. Look at verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John wrote his gospel around 50 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Many folks believe that he wrote it from Ephesus. And he's, he, was, he was an aged apostle, and I can just see him in his little humble dwelling there in Ephesus, and he's recalling the, 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 the amazing ministry of Jesus. He's recalling the teaching of Jesus. He's recalling powerful miracle after powerful miracle that Jesus performed. And under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the aged apostle selected the miracles that would provide proof that Jesus was the resurrected Son of God, the Savior of the world. Look at verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let me tell you, the miracles that John included in the gospel of John are not all the miracles that Jesus did. He selected certain ones for proof that Jesus is who he said he was and that he was alive from the dead. John wrote this gospel so that people in every age could know the truth about Jesus. He wrote this gospel so you could know the truth about Jesus so that you could believe in Jesus, so that you could know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that Jesus was raised from the dead, that Jesus will come again, and that one day, dear friend, Jesus will rule this world. He'll rule this world. If John were here today, he'd want to make sure that this fact is firmly fixed in your mind and heart. 
The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It is the turning point of human history, and it is the turning point of every man, woman, boy, and girl who repents of their sin and believes in Jesus. Some of you this morning have retreated to the safety and security of your own locked room because of loneliness, because of grief, because of confusion, illness, bereavement, disappointment, betrayal, and you're missing out on the life that God wants you to live. I've got some great news for you. Jesus is alive. And just as he had the power to enter the locked room of the disciples 2,000 years ago, he has the power to enter this little locked room that you secured yourself in because of your hurt and your pain or your confusion. And I'll tell you, he'll make himself visible to you in a, in a spiritual way. And he'll help you to understand who he is and what he's done for you. And he can set you free to be the person that he created you to be. I can say three things with certainty, three implications for our lives today based upon the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord, wants you to receive his peace. His peace. But you must believe in him. Some of you are here today and you've heard the gospel numerous times. And you've refused to believe in him. You've got your own reasons. Maybe some of you think, well, it's too good to be true. Some of you may think, well, well, well uh, I would have to cash in my, my, my intellectualism to believe in something as fanciful and mystical as the actual resurrection of a dead body from the grave. And some of you are saying, well, I, I'm not sure I can buy into that. I, I believe there are many ways to God. Why should I believe in Jesus? And I tell you, dear friend, listen to me very carefully. Every excuse that you can offer for not believing in Jesus is a lame excuse. Because the God of heaven has provided this word and he's provided the miracles that Jesus did to prove to you that he is the son of God, that he is the savior of the world, that he is your only hope in this life and the next life. And I invite you today to believe in Jesus. Just like John said, believe in Jesus, put your faith and trust in him, commit your life to him. Don't play games. So I know for certain that the first implication of the resurrection is that Jesus wants you to receive his peace. Number two, he wants you to adopt his purpose. You, you see, Jesus started something 2,000 years ago in that room with those disciples. He sent them out into the world with the gospel. And I tell you, that, that has never been changed. That great commission is still in effect. And I want you to know that Jesus wants you to, to represent him in a lost and dying world. He wants you to share the gospel with your friends, relatives, neighbors, and acquaintances. He wants you to go on mission for him all over this world and make sure that people hear the gospel. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. 
And number three, I'm absolutely for sure of this. Not only does Jesus want you to receive his peace and adopt his purpose, but he also wants you to embrace his power. You see, just as he imparted the Holy Spirit to those disciples in the upper room, if you believe in Jesus, he instantly gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. You are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit indwells you and empowers you for the ministry that Jesus has called you to carry out. Do you know there's nowhere in the New Testament that you can ever find where the Bible teaches that God expects us to live the Christian life in our own power. It's not in here. He expects us to walk in the Spirit, to depend upon the Holy Spirit's power, to obey Him and serve Him and magnify Him in the world around us. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, changes everything his resurrection is a turning point of human history and i hope and pray today that you will receive his peace that you will adopt his purpose and that you will embrace his power let's pray heavenly father We praise you for the resurrection of your son. And I pray today, Lord, that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you would speak to people's hearts, that you would save people, that you would help people to believe in Jesus, to be saved, that you would help believers to adopt his purpose to embrace his power. Lord, glorify yourself in this moment. In Jesus' name.